I think it'll just be a third. We arrive at the high watermark of the creation account in Genesis 1 with the creation of man, male, and female. So before we dive in, let's go to prayer together. Lord, if we do not understand our roots, if we do not understand our beginning, we do not understand ourselves, nor do we understand our future. We pray that you will open your truth to us and enlighten us that we may see you, understand you all the better as we seek to understand our creation in your image, which is so vital for so many, many things. Preserve my voice, I pray, Lord, and relieve me of the cough that has plagued me for weeks now, that this will not be an interrupted message, at least not too much. But guide us in these important things that we may not only know them and believe them, but live our lives consistent with them, following you and seeking to share you with all those who do not know you and encourage those who do in their growth in you. In Christ, we pray. Amen. So, all that God has created so far on days one through five and the first part of day six of the creation week, all of that was a prelude to his creation of man, male and female, on day six. Everything else, in a certain sense, all to the glory of God, of course, but everything else that God created was created with humanity in mind, or for man. And every step of the creation week so far was a preparation of the perfect environment because the original creation was perfect, no evil, no sin, It was the preparation of the perfect environment for the pinnacle of God's creation, human beings. Humanity was always God's central purpose in all of his creating of the universe, seen in the fact that everything else will eventually go out of existence, but man, male and female, will exist forever. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed in intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Everything God created will in effect be uncreated and everything in the physical universe will cease to exist. There will, of course, be a new heavens and a new earth that God will establish. But everything in this physical universe, this now fallen universe, will cease to exist except humanity. 
And the redeemed of the Lord will be with the Lord forever in that new heavens and new earth. The purpose for which God created the universe was so that His grace and mercy and compassion could be lavished on the creature created in His own image. Scripture devotes more space here in the creation account to the creation of man than to any other facet of creation. Because this final act of the creation week is so crucial, the second chapter of Genesis is devoted to an expanded description of it. Genesis chapter 2 is not a different story. It's not a second creation account. Many critics have alleged that it is. Their reasons are detailed, often involving the use of words and supposedly dividing the text of Genesis into different sources. Their arguments are not at all compelling, fall far short, aren't worth my spending time on at this point, but simply to say that there's no evidence that there was more than the one account. Genesis chapter 2 is an expansion on the description that we already have in Genesis chapter 1. Focus now on the creation of humanity. So I begin at verse 26 for today. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them, of course male and female, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Now, of course, in the last message that I brought you in this Genesis account, the land animals and man were created on the same sixth, 24-hour, one revolution of the earth creation day. The notion that Adam and Eve somehow evolved from some already existing form of animal life does not take what the text says seriously. Just not possible to understand it if you believe the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God. Genesis 5, verses 1 and 2 are absolutely clear that it was on a single day that God created humanity. Repeatedly, Scripture refers back to this one momentous day as, say, in Deuteronomy 4 and verse 32. It was on day 6 of God's creation week, and the creation of man was God's final crowning creative act. All of the claimed missing links between men and apes or men and ape-like like creatures, all such missing links have serious problems in terms of evidence. They prove nothing along evolutionary lines. We have no real evidence that man evolved from an ape ancestry. Really, we have no real evidence that any of the alleged missing links 
between kinds of animals on an evolutionary theory of progression, we have no evidence that any of these are shown to actually be intermediary forms. The separate, and hear it carefully, the separate but united creation of man and woman described in Genesis chapter 2 is completely at odds with alleged evolutionary explanations. God created man, male, and female as unique, special, living souls that have a relationship, a personal relationship with him like no other creature on earth. Our creation in God's image distinguishes us and elevates us above all other living creatures. Those who argue that man is on a par with other animals, or indeed that man is beneath the dignity of other animals, are unquestionably wrong. That's even true for all of the sin and evil that man has produced and pursued. Those who purposely take human lives by murder or terrorism or abortion or any other unjust aggression will face the judgment of God. First, quickly, let's notice that in verse 26, God made man. And then it says in verse 27, God created man. I've told you before that a great deal is often made of these two different words, and it is often suggested that God making something allows for an evolutionary process. God creating it doesn't, but God making something allows for some sort of evolutionary overtime process. But both words, make and create, are used in regard to man's creation, demonstrating that these two words often have a very parallel meaning. And of course, given the time period of six solar days in Genesis 1, evolution is ruled out as a possibility anyway. Create and make, these two words are used in parallel in Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 20. Make and create and form, the three words, are used interchangeably in Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 7. Create, make, and form are also used interchangeably in Isaiah 45 and verse 7. And there they are all summed up by the term make. Often too much is made by trying to identify different meanings for God's creating and God's making. The word create can and does seem to mean create out of nothing, creation ex nihilo, at various points in Genesis 1. But it doesn't always mean that, even the word create as is obvious in God creating man, whom we learn in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, he formed out of the dust of the ground. So there was a creation that wasn't out of nothing. The familiar words... Well, sorry. Um, we notice also right off the bat 
a significant wording change here in verse 26 from that which came earlier in Genesis 1. Different from the previous creative acts of God leading up to this point. The familiar words repeated in Genesis 1, then God said, followed by let there be, these words, happening multiple times, are impersonal. They mandate something which is issued to no one in particular, and they are impersonal in language. But now in verse 26, we get personal pronouns. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Let us make stands in clear distinction from verse 24, let the earth bring forth. God emphasizes that man's creation is special and personal by becoming, in the very language he uses, very personal, creating man in his own image, stressing God's very personal and intimate connection with this aspect, human beings, of his creation. The wording establishes a personal relationship between God and man that does not exist in the same way, nothing close to the same way, with any other aspect of creation. It doesn't exist with light or with water, not even with the earth itself, not with the sun, moon, or stars, not even with other living creatures. God has no personal relationship with any of those in the same sense that he does with humanity. All the others exist by God's fiat decree as he ordered them to be, but there is never a hint of intimacy or personal identification between God and the rest of what he created. Indeed, as all created things are, they are distinct from God. But this is the one part, the human part, that while distinct from God, and humanity is not God, there is a very clear, personal, direct relationship involved. And these personal pronouns in verse 26 are plural. Let us. God, of course, being a trinity, we see that as we go marching through the remainder of God's word. When he introduces himself personally, right here in the opening chapter of the word, it is in plural language. Now, why? Some have said this is because um, what's being said here indicates multiple gods or some sort of polytheism. This is hardly the case. The scriptures are throughout bluntly monotheistic. In other words, they declare there is one and only one true God. All other gods are false. They're believed in, they're imagined, but they are false. So it is not an affirmation of multiple gods. Throughout the Bible, the true God is seen as being one being, singular, 
in contrast to many gods believed in by various peoples in various places. And yet, our God speaks of himself in the plural, taking counsel with himself when he creates mankind. So some have said, well, this plural must be, you may have heard this, the plural of majesty, um, a sort of literary device, a, a, a literary type of plural in which God is augmenting his importance and stature in issuing the creative decree by doing it as, as though he were plural when in reality he is singular. Near Eastern kings sometimes issued decrees using the first person plural. The decree came from them, it came from them alone, but they would say we as though they were more than just an individual person. But in biblical Hebrew, there is no such example of the plural of majesty. A more popular explanation to suggest that, or suggest that let us make man in our image is a reference to God in the company of the heavenly host of angels. Something like 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 19. Or Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 3. Or Job chapter 1, verse 6. Or Job chapter 2, verse 1. God doing something in the company of the host of angels. But while angels surround God's throne, we do not find God acting in concert with them or issuing decrees with them, and certainly we do not ever find God creating anything in conjunction with his angels, as though they were also the creatively involved beings that somehow were also doing the creating. And nowhere in Scripture is it indicated that human beings were made in the image or likeness of angels, which would have to be affirmed if that's what this means. Further, while angels praise God, angels serve God, carrying out God's instructions, God never takes counsel with his angels or with anyone in deciding what to do. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 and 14. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him, Who's ever done that, he's saying. With whom did he consult? And who gave him, God, understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And informed him of the way of understanding? It just doesn't happen. This isn't God acting as a general with a bunch of his upper military staff trying to work out a strategy where the general makes suggestions and then hears from the staff their ideas and comes to a conclusion. The general still decides, but comes to a conclusion perhaps based on the input of the others. God doesn't function that way. So none of these suggestions make sense for why the plural pronouns in verse 26 are used. What they do indicate is that there is plurality in the Godhead. In some sense, there is plurality in the Godhead. The fact of multiple persons 
in the Godhead has been hinted at already in the Hebrew word for God found 21, rather in 21 of the first 25 verses of Scripture. And that word for God is Elohim, which takes the form of a plural noun in Hebrew. But the plural nouns in verse 26 are even stronger evidence of the plurality which is in God. We don't, of course, have here a full revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity. But there is an unmistakable reference to plurality in the essence, the nature of the one true God. And it begins to lay the groundwork right here in Genesis 1 for what will be much more explicitly revealed concerning the Trinity, especially in the New Testament. God is presented as inwardly plural and outwardly singular. Our image, verse 26, plural, and God creates man in his own image, in the image of God, verse 27, singular. Further, in verse 26, man in God's image is them, plural. In God's image is them, plural. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, therefore, is the first glimmering, if you will, the real glimmering of a Trinitarian revelation. The word God itself, Elohim, already indicated something plural, but the notion that there are distinct persons that communicate internally in verse 26, first glimmering of Trinitarian revelation. The reference to the Spirit of God in Genesis 1 and verse 2, hovering over the waters, demonstrates a co-participant in creation. The New Testament, of course, gives the full meaning when it teaches the radical involvement of Christ the second person of the Godhead in creation. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. So here in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, we see an awesome declaration about man by God, in consultation with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father was overseeing and decreeing. The eternal word, Christ, who was with God, was involved in every aspect of God's creation. And the Spirit brooding over the waters suggests the most intimate kind of hands-on involvement in the process. So, God created man a living creature, a nephesh. We've run into that term before. Like the animals who are also described as nephesh, man moves and breathes and has and is, rather, a conscious life form. But there the similarity ends between man and the animals. Man was a creature unlike any other created being. Lower life forms could never have evolved into man, and the distinctiveness of this creature is perfectly reflected in the purposes for which man was created. 
He is created to bear God's image, to propagate life, to receive divine blessing, and to rule creation. So, with all of that, what therefore is meant by man created in God's image? Man was created on a heavenly, divine, eternal pattern, if you will. We are not divine, we are not God, but we are patterned after God. We are self-conscious. It's one thing to be a conscious being, but we are self-conscious. In God's image, man can relate to others, and especially to God himself, in a very intimate and full-blown way. God gives us minds to think with, emotions to feel with, and wills to make decisions. But he also gives us an inner spiritual nature. In his image, we are able to know and we are able to worship God. Man in God's image can reason and think and choose and be creative and solve problems and find solutions in something not fully, but all of those things in something of the way that God can and God does. We have emotions and moral consciousness. We are able to do what is right and what is wrong. Our choices have moral relationship. This isn't true of other living creatures. Like God, who is three in one in relationship, man is made for meaningful relationships. Friendships, husbands and wives, parents and children, etc. In God's image, we understand fellowship. This is really a very grand thing, far beyond the capability of animals. We understand fellowship and love, and communion, and conversation. Yes, I know, we've had Dr. Doolittle movies that are fantasy. We understand communication. Man has language. We understand sharing thoughts, and, and sharing attitudes, and sharing ideas, and, and sharing experiences with one another. Human beings are not reducible to or truly understood by our physical, material, chemical, genetic, DNA component parts. There's a lot of interesting information to be gained by a study of such things, but we are not reducible to that. We are not really understandable in those categories alone. There is so much more to us because we are created in the image of God. Created in God's image, we are unique, unlike all other animal life. Man is a transcendent being, not understood by merely examining our brains or our hearts physically, or even by examining them emotionally. Even that isn't the full sense of what we are. 
there is a spiritual component to us as well. God has set eternity in the heart of man. We are told that in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11. And then in verse 21 of that same third chapter of Ecclesiastes, we are told that man's breath ascends upward and that the breath of beasts descends downward. Man's spirit goes up, the spirit of beasts go down. Man is personal, self-conscious, and in essence, eternal. Able to know and relate to God. Man is simply different, and the difference is vast with aspects that are completely, and I mean completely, beyond any imagined evolutionary explanation. R. Kent Hughes said it well, and I quote, Though you could travel a hundred times the speed of light, past countless yellow-orange stars, to the edge of the galaxy, and swoop down to the fiery glow of a few hundred light years below the plane of the Milky Way, though you could slow to examine the host of hot young stars luminous among the gas and dust, though you could observe close up the protostars poised to burst forth from their dusty cocoons, though you could witness a star's birth in all your stellar journeys, you would never see anything equal to the birth and wonder of a human being. A tiny baby boy or girl is the apex of God's creation. But the greatest wonder of it all is that that child is created in the image of God. The Imago Dei. A child that once was not now is a created eternal soul. He or she will exist forever. When the stars of the universe fade away, that human soul shall still live. End quote. In verse 26, describing man created in God's image, a second term is used to make the same point. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, again, two words, different words, can be very similar. Some have thought that image and likeness are telling us two completely different things about creation. But again, I think these two words are basically synonymous. That is, they are parallel with a fairly parallel meaning. God used both words, image, image and likeness, saying the same thing twice for emphasis. Because man created in God's image or likeness is so vitally important to understand. We are different than all other creatures on earth. And using both terms image and likeness, again, these are basically parallel terms, but I think there is some purpose in using them both beyond just simply emphasis. Using both terms image and likeness, God keeps us from quickly assuming that our similarity to him is primarily a physical thing. Had God used the word image, the word rather image alone, 
we might conceivably think that our parallel to God is just physical, given that the common images used in idolatry, certainly in earlier days, were physical. The word image keeps us from thinking that we are exactly like God. We are not God himself. We are like God, truly like God, but not identical to God. We are not God. Indeed, image conveys the reality that God is the pattern for the personhood of man. Man has preeminence over all other creatures. Man is the climax and crown of God's creation. Man alone created in God's image. We certainly have similarities to animals, a common design of limbs and organs to meet common needs, living as we do on the same planet in similar environments. But man is clearly distinct from the animal world. All people, every one, should be treated with a certain honor, respect, dignity, and care beyond even animals. To treat a human being like an animal, as in some forms of slavery, servitude, or oppression, is evil. To think of man as no better than an animal, or worse than an animal, as in radical animal rights activist groups, this is not only wrong, but it is belittling and disrespectful to God. The God in whose image and likeness man was created and exists. It is evolutionary theory and not truth that encourages us to see man as no better than animals or no really different than animals or to think that animals ought to be accorded rights parallel to human beings. It's interesting to note that the Egyptian pharaohs were thought to exist in the image of God. But only the pharaoh, not anyone else. The Egyptians and all others who see a few as of greater or higher value than the rest are wrong. And it's an evil idea. Created in God's image is not a physical look-alikeness sort of thing. After all, God is in essence spirit. So, given those distinctions, the two terms still have valuable meaning. To be in his image is fundamentally a spiritual likeness. Self-consciousness, moral consciousness, consciousness of others, and especially consciousness of God himself. God does not have the form of a man or woman. We are a reflection of him. We partake of his characteristics in a moral sense in intellect, emotions, will, choice, reasoning, ability, self-consciousness, capacity to worship and love, etc. Ability to understand, ability to remember. So created in God's image and likeness does not mean a physical look-alikeness thing, but some elements of us do physically reflect the image of God. They, I think, physically reflect the image of God. Our posture, standing upright, 
distinguishes us from four-footed beasts and creeping things. The natural posture of animals directs their gaze downward toward the earth. Man is naturally positioned to look upward toward the heavens to contemplate the glory of God. Even our faces with naturally expressive eyes and a host of meaningful expressions, even that specially suits us for relationship. The human being is not the seat or primary expression of God's image. The human body, rather, is not the seat or primary expression of God's image. But our bodies are even made in such a way that they serve as vehicles through which our image in God is manifested. And of course, God knew that in the fullness of time, even he would become a man. He prepared a human body in the likeness of men, just as man had been made in the likeness of God. Evolutionists would utterly erase the truth of man's likeness to God, created in God's image from the collective consciousness of the human race. Evolution posits man's existence by natural causes completely separate from any connection to any divine being. This is one reason why the battle against evolutionary theory is a battle Christians cannot afford to abandon. I'll have more to say about some Christians who wed the two together in a future message. Prior to the fall, man was capable of pure and undefiled sharing of God's communicable attributes. His communicable attributes are those attributes of the divine nature that are capable of being reflected in man. Love, holiness, grace, wisdom, truth, goodness, mercy, long-suffering, righteousness. In God's image and likeness, we are persons capable of all such things and able to love others in a God-like way. We have a, a, a capacity for so much. We have conversations and thoughts. We perceive a sense of brotherhood and sisterhood. We communicate ideas. We participate in experiences. Animals do none of these things. Not being created in God's image or likeness. So what has become of God's image in man since creation. I need to take this off. Some have thought that at the fall, Genesis 3, man lost God's image and it is only regained at conversion. John Chrysostom, Gregory of Nyssa, to speak of two historically, the Roman Catholic Church. Christ in God's perfect image, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, John 12, verse 45, Christ alone is in God's perfect image. Believers in Christ are spoken of as being transformed and conformed to the image of Christ in the sanctification process in this life. 
via the work of the Holy Spirit, God's image in those who believe is being restored and renewed. But this does not mean that non-believers do not bear the image of God at all. Our image or likeness has certainly been marred by sin. We are fallen, but God's image is not gone completely. All human beings are special because all bear the image of God. Some of the 16th century reformers erred thinking that God's image was completely destroyed in the fall, Genesis 3. What was lost was man's original righteousness. But even after the corruption of the world and the flood's judgment, mankind was and still is in God's image. Mankind, all human beings. We find, for instance, in Genesis 9, verses 6 and 7, after the flood, capital punishment is instituted for those who commit murder because man is made in the image of God. Matthew 22, verse 21, in the passage where Jesus is asked about paying taxes, he replies, yes, we are to do so. The image on the coin being Caesar's, the governing authority is rightfully due our tax support. What is implied in Jesus' answer is that we human beings, all human beings, bear the image of God in their person. So Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. All human beings owe God everything. Most don't recognize it. And even we who recognize it don't live it out. We still sin, but we all owe God everything created as we are in his image. James chapter 3 and verse 9. The people that we bless and curse with our tongues, we are told, have all been made in the likeness of God. In the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 and verse 4. No statue or image of God is allowed. One implication of this being that human beings are made in God's image already. The image of God still persists in sinful men and women, though marred, and sometimes even a caricature and a witness against itself. Nevertheless, the image of God that we all bear is wondrous, which holds in all of us eternal potential. Thus, the reality that humanity bears the image of God as he created us has vitally important ramifications for our behavior toward one another. In Luke 10, when the lawyer asked Jesus what he needed to do to be saved, Jesus told him to love God and his neighbor. The lawyer then asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus then talked about the Good Samaritan who helped the man stripped and beaten by robbers, whereas the priest and the Levite passed by and left the man in the ditch. Jews didn't consider Samaritans worthy of their love, much less a man in a ditch. Jesus' point was that we are to love all others and treat them with kindness 
and care and compassion like that Samaritan. No matter how sinful they are, and we are all enormously sinful, we are to love as Christ loved all who are created in God's image, praying that they may know him as we do and be saved by his grace and power through faith in him. So it has ever been since God created man in his image on the sixth day of his creation. Let's pray. Father, the ramifications of what you reveal here are vast. We are to love our enemies because even our enemies, human ones, are in your image. We, of course, stand against so many evil things that so many do, including ourselves. But we nevertheless are to see human beings as special and different. They are the ones we seek to reach with the gospel. They are the ones that can have eternal life in Christ. They are the ones that, short of that, will have eternal existence apart from Christ. They are the pinnacle of your creation and deserve our special attention just as they received yours. May we be found living lives worthy of you, reflective of you, enjoying the characteristics that you have given us in your image and growing in them in the sanctification process. But may we also see that we have a duty, that we have a need to love others as you love all, that as you desire they would come to you, we desire that they would come to you and grow in you. May we be committed to that above all things, we pray in Christ. Amen. Rise, if you will, for the benediction. God has made you special in his image. Rejoice in that. Enjoy that. Thank him for that. And live in that image as you are meant to, reaching out to others who don't know him. Depart in his peace. Amen. Well, the ladies need to stay.